Amen. I actually want to start today's teaching with a scripture from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, if you would listen to this. It says there that since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, referring to the Old Testament saints of faith, it says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In those verses, we are instructed as God's people, uh, if we're believers today, to set aside sin and to run the race that is set before us, and that there's a way in which we can do that. We're to set our eyes upon Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him ran his race, enduring the cross, enduring the cross, so that eventually he would receive what came after the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, and glory. And by being ascended to the right hand of the Father, Jesus did not merely just go back to glory, but he became the head of a new humanity, the body of Christ, the church. So in a sense, what you could say is, Jesus endured the cross because he had this joyful expectation that after the cross, he would ascend, and in his exalted position, he would be the head of the new humanity that he had come to produce and purchase by and through his blood. And the reason that I'm pointing that out is because, very simply, there in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, Jesus had a massive work of fruit that was in front of him. And for the joy of that fruit, he endured the pain and the difficulty and the heartache, the cross of Christ, in order to get to that beautiful fruit. And that is exactly what is happening in the life of our man David as we turn to 1 Samuel chapter 25. God has put a call upon David's life. He knows that in the future, he is to be the king of the nation of Israel. But God has dreams for David and plans for David that extend beyond just being on the throne for a temporary amount of time. No, God is going to promise eventually to David that on his throne will sit the Messiah, Jesus, who will reign over all of humanity and the new creation forever and ever and ever. It is massive fruit that God has for David. But in this story, David is going to be tempted to behave in a way that could shortcut God's plan for his life. He's going to be tempted to slay a man named Nabal and take matters into his own hands in a way that would harm his reputation. You cannot be the king of Israel and treat people in that way. And so what David is going to have to learn is that God has this plan for my life. There is this great and glorious future fruit that he wants to produce in my life. And in order for that to come, I've got to cling to the Lord 
today and trust the Lord today. And the reason I'm saying all of that is because I believe the same thing is true in a smaller sense in your life and in my life. We're not little Jesuses in the sense that we are not here to die on the cross for anyone's sins and win that kind of future fruit. And we are not like David going to someday be the king in Israel. But there is fruit that God has for your life and for my life. And the things that we're doing today, the stuff we're walking through today, we will be tempted to behave in such a way that it will hurt the future fruit that God has for our life. And so we want to learn from the Lord and walk with the Lord. So I hope as we go through this story, you'll see and discover what David learned, what David saw that helped him cling to the Lord, stay away from sin, and be walking with the Lord so that that great and glorious fruit could come out of his life. Now as we go through this, I'm just going to give you guys a little word of warning. we got 44 verses in front of us right now, so that's like a lot, all right? And not only that, but I have, there's, there's four characters David's going to interact with. Nabal, himself, Abigail, and God. A man named Nabal, his own heart, David, Abigail, Nabal's wife, and God. And for each one of these people that David is going to interact with, he's going to learn a lot. And I have three things for each person that David is going to learn from. So basically, I'm telling you, we have 44 verses and 12 points to get through. So I'm going to be plowing this morning, all right? This is what we're going to be doing. So I'm just giving you like a word of warning. I should have done it outside before you came in, but I just thought I'd trick you and let you go to worship. And then now here you go. I've got 12 points and 44 verses this morning. So let's start out reading in verse one. It says, now Samuel died and all Israel assembled and mourned for him. And they buried him in his house at Ramah. Samuel is the character of the first half, really, of the book of Samuel. He was the prophet of the nation of Israel. It's very interesting because in his earthly ministry, they did not listen to him. But after he's dead, they come together and they mourn for him. He was part of David's support team. And so this would have been a hard thing for David to go through to witness Samuel's death. Then David, verse 1 rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. That's how we're going to pronounce it today, but I might slip and say Carmel because, you know, that's where we live. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. Now, you and I, when we read that, that doesn't necessarily mean to us, you know, you know, if somebody walked up to you and said, I'm really rich, and you said, prove it, and they said, well, I have 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, you might, I don't really know what to do with that. Uh, but the book of Job tells us that Job was an incredibly wealthy man, and he had 7,000 sheep. So he had 7,000, Nabal had 3,000, so Nabal is approaching Job territory, all right? So in Bible terms, that's a lot of money. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, verse 3, the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. Now, I'm not going to take a show of hands, but how many of you know of a marriage like this? Abigail was godly. She loved the Lord. She was discerning, wise, and beautiful. But Nabal was a harsh and badly behaved man. It was probably an arranged marriage. 
that Abigail had slipped into. Now David, verse 4, heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you and peace be to your house and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us and we did them no harm and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at, your ha- at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. Now, this is a very customary thing that David is doing. His men, his 600 men, have apparently, for a period of time, protected Nabal and his shepherds from harm from the neighboring people groups, people like the Philistines who would come in and raid the people of Israel and take away their crops and their supplies, David has, with his men, defended Nabal. So now the time of shearing has come. Nabal's about to receive some income for what he's been doing out there with his shepherds. And so David sends 10 men to ask for Nabal to kind of pay him back, to show his gratitude for the service that he's given to Nabal. So let's see what Nabal, this harsh and badly behaved man, does in response. Verse 10, and Nabal answered David's servants, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water, and my meat that I have killed for my shearers, and give it to men who come from I do not know where. So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. So we'll stop right there at that moment and consider first what David would have learned from this man, Nabal. Obviously, Nabal doesn't do what David would like him to do. Uh, Nabal rebuffs David. He refuses to provide for David, and he speaks in negative terms about David. Who is David? Who's the son of Jesse? Many servants these days break away from their masters. And David would have learned some crucial lessons through this man, Nabal. Number one, he would have learned that little Saul's are everywhere in life. You see, up to this point in David's life, his main opposition had come through Saul. People had been whispering in Saul's ear, but they were basically on Saul's team parroting the mood and the attitude of Saul. And David could have convinced himself at this point in his life that once Saul was gone, David's life would become peaceful, blissful, wonderful. But what he's discovering with this man Nabal, whose name, by the way, means fool, Uh, That's a name that probably his parents did not give to him because that would be pretty harsh, but was probably a name that Nabal had earned throughout his lifetime. And what David is learning is that even though Saul is not the one who's doing this to David, there are miniature Sauls everywhere throughout life. Think about it. Nabal should have treated David with gratitude for what David had done for him, and so should have Saul. Saul should have been thankful to David for defending him from the Philistines and killing Goliath. 
Uh, Nabal should have been on David's team. He should have said, thank you, David. I'm on your team. I support you and I'll get behind you because when you are doing well, I am doing well. And Saul could have had the very same attitude. He could have realized that David was faithful and loyal and that as long as he supported this officer in his army, Saul's kingdom was actually blessed. And Nabal should have aided David just like Saul should have aided David. But Nabal didn't just as Saul didn't. You see, the reality is people like Nabal are bound to litter your life. Now I hope that you are not a Nabal for someone else. But the truth is that there will be people in life who, like Saul and like Nabal, should support us, should be behind us, but have not been faithful and let us down. You know, for people like this, we have a father in heaven. David was realizing in this moment that he would face opposition from more than just Saul, but that there would be people like this all throughout his reign, all throughout his lifetime. Now that leads me to the second thing that David would have learned about, about Nabal or from Nabal. He would have learned, number two, that not everyone will believe in or be pleased with you. You look at Nabal's response again in verse 10. He says, who's David? And then he makes it clear that he knows exactly who David is when he says, who's the son of Jesse? I mean, he knows David's family, and then he knows David's story. He says, there's many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. This was Nabal's way of saying, look, I've seen what's happened. I've seen how David has run from Saul. Saul is David's master, but David has run from his master. And and Nabal's making it clear, I'm on Saul's team. I'm on the master's team. I will not excuse for a moment what David has done. Now, of course, Nabal was incredibly wrong in this assessment of David because Saul was not just a harsh master. He tried to kill David over a dozen times at this point. And so David is fleeing for his life. But what he would have learned through Nabal and also through Saul is that you cannot please everyone. Not everyone will believe in or be pleased with you. You see, the reality is the moment you start following after God, you are bound to let other people down. The moment that you begin to say yes to the Lord, there will be people throughout this world and in this life that you are bound to disappoint. You cannot make everyone happy, especially as you're serving the Lord. And David needed to learn this lesson because when he became king, not everyone was his fan. There were times where people would disregard him, turn from him, deny him, and betray him. And David needed to prepare for the reality that not everyone would believe in or be pleased with him. But if you want to get the big fruit in life, You must give up trying to please everyone in your life. There's an illustration of this in the life of Jesus that I find so beautiful. At the beginning of his earthly ministry, he was doing a lot of stuff up in the region of the Galilee, Capernaum. And there was one particular day that was like the epic coming out party of Jesus' ministry. 
We're in Capernaum. He was healing the sick, and he was giving sight to the blind, and healing the paralyzed, and he was casting out demons. It was like this manifestation of the kingdom of God, the power of God on earth in such a special and beautiful way. And the day started really early, and it went deep into the night. And finally, it got so late that it was time for everybody to go home and for everybody to go to sleep. And so finally, the day of ministry ended. And it tells us in Mark's gospel that the next morning, a great while before daylight, while it was still dark, Jesus arose. And he went out into a desolate place and he prayed. Now, eventually, the disciples woke up. They didn't get up quite as early as Jesus. And when they woke up, they found that the crowds, the people, they were pestering the disciples because everybody in town wanted to have a repeat of what had just happened the day before. I mean, when you have a day filled with the miraculous and then you wake up the next day and people say, what do you, what do you want to do today? The answer is, let's do what we did yesterday. And so they go to the disciples and the disciples begin looking for Jesus. Eventually they find Jesus. He'd been out, like I said, in a desolate place in prayer. And they come to Jesus and they say, all the people are looking for you. Let us go back into the village. Let's do the really good thing that you did yesterday. Let's repeat it today. But Jesus said, no, we must go to the next towns because for this purpose of preaching to all these other towns, I have come forth. In other words, Jesus had gone out into the wilderness and he had called out to his Father in heaven and he had received direction from God who had said to him as a father, this is what I have planned for your life. I know other people are going to ask you to come and do all these things one more time in Capernaum, but that's not what I've asked you to do. You must say no to them to do the thing that I have called you to do. They were disappointed with Jesus for that decision, but to get the big fruit, you must give up trying to please everyone. Number three, David would have learned from Nabal that power and influence and wealth go to the heads of many people. Notice how Nabal responded. Look at it in verse 11. He says, shall I take my bread, my water, my meat that I've killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? You see, Nabal was a man that was very confused about his wealth. He thought it was all his. Over and over again, he uses the word my. My bread, my water, my meat, my shearers. He didn't realize that part of the reason that God had blessed his life is so that he could provide for a man like David. How beautiful that Nabal could have partnered with David in the work of the Lord. He could have had a future position in David's kingdom. But instead of seeing himself as a steward of things that God had entrusted into his care, he got a big head about it and thought that all of his possessions were his doing, had come from him, and belonged to him exclusively. This was a huge lesson for David to learn. And here's why. David got himself into trouble later in his life when he began to look out on the kingdom of Israel and think to himself, I built this. I did this. I deserve some perks. I deserve some privileges. And he got to a place in his life where he looked at a young woman who was another man's wife 
and even began to convince himself that that was something that was fine and okay for him to partake of. No, he needed to learn from Nabal that sometimes power and influence and wealth, the tendency is that it would go to the heads of the people who possess those things. We must humble ourselves before the Lord when he has blessed our lives in these ways and submit to him. Jesus, the greatest of all time, lowered himself as a servant to wash his disciples' feet, and so we also should serve in that kind of way. All right, now let's look and see how David responded to Nabal. Remember how David has responded to Saul. I'll remind you of that. Remember a couple of weeks ago, Saul came to David, to David's cave, and David cut the corner of his robe, and his heart was so convicted over it. You know, the guy Saul has tried to kill David over a dozen times, and David cuts the corner of his robe, and he's like, oh, that's so wrong of me. I should, I should not do that to you. You've tried to kill me 12 times, but I cut off the corner of your robe. I feel so bad about that. Notice how David responds to Nabal. Verse 13, and David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. So this guy, who has been so forgiving towards Saul, so gracious towards Saul, so merciful towards Saul, Nabal won't give his men a decent little potluck, a little luncheon, and David says to 400 of them, Put on your swords. We are going to kill this guy. But let's see what happens next. One of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields, as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, all the while while we were keeping with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. That's a real indictment on Nabal. This, this uh, servant, he's taking a risk. He's telling Nabal's wife what has happened. Then Abigail, verse 18, made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared, and five seahs of parched grain, and a hundred clusters of raisins, and two hundred cakes of figs, and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey, and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. So she's a very wise woman. She's going to intercede, but first she's going to give a gift to David. Now it says in verse 21, now David had said, surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. David at this point is in serious danger. Remember, God has a plan for David's life. He's asked him 
to be the future king of Israel. He's anointed his life in that way. And you cannot be the king of a group of people, and when one of them does not give the tribute that you request, go and kill them and all of their male servants. I mean, that's just not a very kingly thing to do. David is about to blow his witness in a major and significant way. Now, Abigail is going to come and save him from doing that. But before we look at that, let's notice what David would have learned from himself. First of all, he would have learned that there is no quitting time for the enemy. You see, this guy who behaved so well when Saul was around, he's about to lose it when Nabal is present in his life. You see, it says in Ephesians 6, verse 11, that we are to put on the full armor of God so that we can stand against the tactics of the devil. And the devil is plenty happy to allow David to be successful when dealing with Saul if he can trip him up when he's dealing with Nabal. You could probably relate to this kind of concept. You know, maybe think about the job or the career that is yours, the thing that you spend a big bulk of your time on and in. You know, for a lot of us, we put a lot of our concentration and a lot of our energy into the career that God has placed into our lives. And so we pray about it, we think about it, we concentrate upon it, and when we go to work, perhaps, we're, you know, kind of putting our best foot forward. We want to work really hard, we want to serve really well, we know maybe even ahead of time, difficult people or situations or meetings or decisions that we're going to have to make, and we prepare ourselves for that. We pray about it, maybe even. We go to the Lord and say, God, give me strength for this thing that I need to do. But then we come home at the end of the day, and we might let our guard down. We might say to ourselves, you know, in that moment that the battle is over with, but then we might be rude to the people that we live with. We might find ourselves getting into a little bit of sin in our leisure time because we aren't realizing that the enemy is working 24-7 to trip up our lives. You see, the enemy has no quitting time in our lives. You know, last weekend we had our Easter and Good Friday services together. And so that meant we had six services throughout the weekend, six services to preach the Bible at and to celebrate Jesus in. And it's a great joy. I'm so glad that I can devote my life, you know, to that. But it's a tiring thing. You know, you you get tired, you get physically tired. But you know, when I go home, my daughters don't care about that. They're not saying to me, Dad, you have been out there serving the great God Almighty. So it makes all the sense in the world that you might be a little short with us, or that you might be impatient with us, or that you might be unkind to us. And that is just fine, Dad. We forgive you of that because after all, you are a man of God serving the Lord. No, they don't care about that. They just know Dad's home. And so... It stands for all of us to say, man, we have got to realize that that there is no quitting time for the enemy. He is always trying to, uh, with his tactics, pull down our lives. David would have also learned that the big battles might manifest themselves in smaller struggles. I mean, as we look and see how David responded to Nabal, don't you think that the reader of this text 
is meant to conclude that David has been suppressing some stuff that he is now venting with Nabal. Don't you think that we're meant to conclude that after Saul has tried to kill him 12 times, even though he's been pretty cool about it, even though he's been pretty forgiving about it, that it has gotten under his skin. And now Nabal does a little thing in comparison to Saul's big thing, yet David loses it. He freaks out. You see, the big battles sometimes manifest themselves in smaller struggles in our lives. You might have an ongoing, maybe even decade-long battle or struggle with an employer, with a boss, with someone who's in a position of, of, of authority in your life in the workplace. And yet, you might take it out upon your spouse or upon the friends in your lives. You may have had a major battle with your father growing up. Maybe he was a hard person, a hard man who could not be pleased, who would never say a kind word into your heart. And now the battle manifests itself in a smaller way as you give yourself really easily to any man who will give you a compliment or who will be kind to you. You may have deep disappointments in your life that have been caused by the decisions of people in authority in your life, and it might manifest itself in you being distrusting of any authoritative figure that comes into your life today. You might have pressures that cause you to lash out with your children, but the big battles will often manifest themselves in smaller struggles. There's a verse in the New Testament that illustrates this. Colossians 3, verse 5. Paul said to the church, put to death what belongs to your worldly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. The reason I quote that verse is because it's fascinating. There's five things that Paul in that verse said that we as a church should put off. The first four are in the sexual immorality category. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desire, they are all sexual in nature. But then he throws in a fifth for good measure. He says, and greed, which is idolatry. It's kind of confusing. Like, Paul, I, I see where you're going. You got this whole sexual sphere that you want believers to make sure that we no longer live like the world, but that we adopt a biblical sex ethic for ourselves, and so we're to put off these categories of sexual immorality, but then you list four things about that, and then one thing about greed, which you call idolatry. What's the deal with that? Well, the big battle that he's mentioning is put off the worldly way of behaving sexually. But then greed. You see, Greed or covetousness and operating in it is merely a way for a person to say, the lines that God has drawn for me, I reject them. And I should be allowed to have more than what God has drawn for me, more than what God has designed for me. I should be able to have more than that. And so, if the enemy can get you into greed or into covetousness where you are saying, I deserve more materially than what God has designed for me, then he might be able to get you to the place where you say, and now I deserve more than God has designed for me sexually as well. 
So often, the big battle might manifest itself in smaller struggles. David also would have learned, before we move to our next section, that he and we need the Lord's help 24-7. Amen? I mean, here was this guy. He'd done well in the cave with Saul. He'd done well in the palace with Saul. He'd done well over and over again with Saul. And maybe for a second he thought, oh man, Saul's gone. I can breathe a little bit. I don't have to pray as hard. I don't have to psalm it up as hard. You know, I don't have to you know, be clinging to the Lord as hard as before. I can kind of relax. And in that relaxed moment, man, he almost slipped. What he would have learned is that he needed the Lord just like we need the Lord 24-7. We can't even do the smallest things for his honor and glory without his help, amen? And so David would have learned that, man, we need the Lord's help all the time. All right, now let's look at Abigail in verse 23. She's come out to David. She's got all these supplies, all this food for David and his men. And it says, when Abigail saw David, verse 23, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord, speaking of David, regard this worthless fellow Nabal. This is her husband, by the way, that she's talking about. (laughs) For as his name is, so is he. Remember, his name meant fool. Nabal is his name. She said, and I always want to say, Nabal is his name and folly is his game. But she says, Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. In other words, I would have done something about it if I had heard about it. Now then, my Lord, verse 26, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from your blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, Now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. Up to that point, Abigail merely is asking for forgiveness and asking that David would be appeased by this gift. But notice what she does next because she begins to prophesy over David. At the end of verse 28, she says, For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. She's talking about David. God is going to give you a sure house. Because my Lord, that's David, is fighting the battles of the Lord. In other words, David, you're fighting for God. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, The life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. So very poetically, Abigail is talking about how God is going to protect David, put him in the bundle of the living. She even talks about the sling, which David, of course, is familiar with, and that God would sling out David's enemies. And when, verse 30, the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience 
for having shed blood without cause, or for my Lord working salvation for himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. Notice what she's prophesied. You will become the prince or the king of Israel. And David said to Abigail, verse 32, Blessed be the Lord. He says, thank God. The God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. Verse 33, blessed be your discretion. In other words, thank you for your wisdom. And blessed be you. Thank you for yourself who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, Unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. Abigail serves David in a beautiful way in this moment. Because she reminds him of who he is. She reminds him that God has a plan for his life. She reminds him that he is fighting the battles of the Lord and that God is building him a house that will last forever. She really, in a sense, is foreshadowing the promise that God is going to make to David years later in 1 Samuel chapter 7. And what David would have learned from Abigail is number one, the value of godly support. It says in Ecclesiastes 4, verse 9, that two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Notice that as Abigail supported David, she brought out the best in him and she made up for his weaknesses. Look, if you're going to see the big fruit of God come out of your life, you're going to need to have godly support in your life. You're going to have to have people within your life who compliment you, who bring out the best in you, especially in those moments where the worst in you is about to come out. And she made up for David in his moment of weakness. It says in Proverbs 27, verse 17, that as iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. I was just talking to someone recently, my cousin, I was sharing with him, he was asking me about when Christina and I, how we met each other, how we got married and all of that, and I was just sharing with him about Christina and just, I mean, we met here in the church, we got married actually on this platform, Um, but I was just sharing with him how I'm so glad and grateful to God for the support that she has given to me over the years her godliness her intensity her love for the body of christ in so many ways outpaces mine and so when i'm in those moments of discouragement when i'm in those moments where pastor my the pastor nate had is coming off she has been a great source of encouragement to speak into my life and to help bring out the best in my life and to make up for the weaknesses that are within me. You see, David was learning here the value of godly support. He was also learning, number two, the value of a wise reprover. 
the value of a wise reprover. Now, you probably haven't gone around this last week saying to yourself, you know what I really need? A wise reprover. That's what I need. But the reason I say it that way is because Proverbs 25, verse 12, speaks about like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. It's clear that Abigail had skills in bringing this corrective, confrontational word to David. I mean, first of all, she started with food. That's a great strategy, ladies. Food first. I mean, David sees all this food coming out. He's like, man, what is going on here? Then she comes and she bows down. She's humble. She, She speaks to him with this great deference. She had incredible wisdom as she brought rebuke and correction, really, into David's life. You see, some people know how to rebuke. Some people know how to reprove, but they don't know how to do it with wisdom. Abigail was a wise reprover. And David was learning here the value of this in his life. This was important because years later, after he made a major mistake, Nathan the prophet would come to him as another wise reprover. And had David not seen the value of people like this in his life during times where he was going astray to speak into his life, he might not have heard what Nathan said. And he might not have walked in the forgiveness and the cleansing and the second chance of God. So he learned the value of a wise reprover, but he also, listened to this, learned from Abigail that cleanness today produces fruitfulness tomorrow. Cleanness today produces fruitfulness tomorrow. You see, what she was thinking about was not only what was happening today, but what was going to happen in the next week and the next year and the next decade of David's life. And she had envisioned this man who if he behaved poorly today, he would have blood on his hands for decades as the king of Israel. But if he could walk correctly before God, rightly before God today, it would lead to deeper and better fruit in his life tomorrow. Now let's close by reading how David responded and what he learned from the Lord in verse 36 to the end of the chapter. It says, And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry with him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things. She told him everything that happened with David the day before. You know, David was here. He was going to kill you. He had 400 guys with their swords on. I interceded for us. I gave him some food. That's what happened. And when Nabal heard these things, his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. So he had a stroke or something like a stroke. So he's just there like a stone. He's still alive, but he's like lifeless. And verse 38, about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. And when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, blessed be the Lord. (laughs) This is amazing. He's not like, oh, I'm so sad. You know, he was a, he was a really, he was a good guy. You know, he meant well. No, he just says, "Blessed be the Lord, who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned on returned the evil of Nabal on his own head." 
Uh, We'll go back to that, but let's read the end of the chapter. It says, And then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at, at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. That's quite the marriage proposal right there. You know, some friends just come, hey, our friend sent to take you to be his wife. What do you say? And she rose, verse 41, and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Okay, we're entering into weird territory here. And Saul, verse 44, had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galim. All right, so this thing happens. David ends up marrying uh, Abigail. It's, you know, in our modern era, this is not a very romantic kind of way that it all goes down. You know, the husband dies, David sends messengers to say, come be my wife. And she says, yes. And she says, my, I'm the servant of my Lord to wash his feet. Like these are not part of any modern marriage vows today. Uh, but she says that she goes and she starts serving David and his house. And then he marries another lady. And then there's a mention that Saul had taken his first wife, David's first wife, Michael, who was Saul's daughter, and by this time he had already taken her away from David and had given her to this other guy, this name Palti, the son of Laish, who was from uh, Galim. All right, now the Bible is a book that tells the truth about its heroes. And here's David, a man who you can see a foretaste of his future major sin because he's dabbling in polygamy here in this moment. Now it's true that at this point in biblical revelation, a polygamy was not as expressly forbidden as it would be in our modern era where we have all 66 books of the Bible. However, there were indications that kings were not to multiply wives for themselves. And there was also just the law of nature and the law of God's testimony up to this point. Because the Bible, though it records polygamy from time to time, it never records it in a favorable light. In other words, you should be able to read about it and kind of go, man, that like never worked out for anybody. It never was like led to a big happy family. It never was that. There was always competition and heartbreak and lust and sin and all of that. You see, the closer that you get to the gospel in biblical revelation, which is progressive, as you get closer to the gospel, the closer you get to the gospel, the closer you get to the Ephesians 5 paradigm where a man loves his wife singularly as Christ loves the church, and lays down his life for her. The closer you get to Jesus, the more you know the gospel, the more you embrace not a new thing, but what God had instituted way back in the old days of the Garden of Eden, where man would leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two would become one flesh. Not the two would become like five flesh. All right, so the closer you get to the gospel, the more you get to that. In other words, the more you let biblical revelation rule your heart, the more you'll adopt 
what God has to say on matters like these. And in another sense, you could say the more a person or a culture runs from the gospel, the more you would expect that people would behave however they desire to behave in this area of life. It would not surprise me at all to see polygamy become a thing in our culture very soon. If it isn't already, we might not call it polygamy, but there are other ways that people enjoy as many people as they possibly can. And the further you run from gospel revelation, the more you'll run to that. All right, so I said all of that, but now I want to go back and think about what David learned from God because I just don't want my last point to be about polygamy. (laughs) So what would David have learned from God? He would have learned that God is my defense. That's what he said in verse 39. God has avenged me. God has avenged me. He would have learned that he did not need to fight Nabal, that he did not need to, in the future, fight against Saul, but that all he had to do was what Abigail had said. He just had to fight the battles that the Lord had put in his life. Jesus said it like this, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. You don't have to fight your battles. You need to fight the Lord's battles, and he will take care of you. He will avenge you. Number two, he would have learned that God works hard to restrain us from evil. He said in verse 39, God kept me back from doing this thing. You see, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. With every single temptation that comes our way, God has prepackaged a way of escape for us to get out of that temptation. And he is working hard as Jesus intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father to keep us from evil. But then number three, David would have learned from God that God is faithful to complete the work in our lives. David did not enter into this episode with an intense amount of intentionality on walking and living the holy and godly life, but God preserved him and God kept him from doing something that would have really discredited the work of God in his life. Paul said to the Philippian church, I'm sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You see, we might enter into the sanctification process with the Lord, but you know who's working harder on our sanctification than we are? It's the Lord. He's working. He's moving. And David would have learned that God is faithful to complete the work in our lives. So there's fruit out there. There's a thing that God wants to do in you, that God wants to do through you. But there will be moments in our lives where we will be tempted to behave in a way that will keep us from the kind of fruitfulness that God wants to bring us into. So let us be on guard and learn from the Lord so that we would not enter into a thing that would keep us from God's purpose for us. Father, we just pray before you.